0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 56 and there are movements afoot. For instance, Transvaal President Paul Kruger is on his way to Europe on a diplomatic mission. Free State President Steyn is moving through the northern Transvaal and General Louis Boerter is harassing Canadian, Australian and English troops stationed along the all-important railway line between Pretoria and Delagoa Bay. Also moving across the felt are generals Christian de Wett and Cours de la Rey. The former has made his way back into his beloved Free State, while the latter is making life difficult for the English across a broad swathe of the Transvaal. Steyn and the rest of the Free State government were returning to battle in the Free State after the all-important meeting with Kruger in Nelspruit, where it was decided to go ahead with a guerrilla campaign. The British, meanwhile, are considering winding down their forces in South Africa, with their Commander-in-Chief, Lord Roberts, planning his trip back home. The Boers have arranged a second major meeting of generals and government officials at Seyferfontein. at a farm around a 100 kilometers west of the gold mining city of Johannesburg, and that was set for October 25th. Steyn was en route here on his circuitous ride home, so too De La Rey and De Wett, while Boerter would also rendezvous with these erstwhile Boer commanders. More about that gathering in coming podcasts. Meanwhile, Lord Roberts has set up his army across South Africa to act more like police than soldiers. He believed the bandits, as he called these small groups of roaming Boers, would eventually surrender as long as their logistics could be smashed so apart from ordering the farms destroyed close to where railway lines or bridges were blown up he divided the country into areas of command garrisons were created in various towns and villages to put down the insurgency in the countryside he set up various flying columns these were supposed to be highly mobile cavalry and mounted infantry units which were tasked with tracking down and trapping the boer bands in reality They could not obtain enough horses in order to achieve their main aim. However, the small bands of Boers began to multiply through October, and yet these flying columns could not locate the ever-increasing commandos. They were scarcely glimpsed by the flying columns, which proved to be a misnomer. Instead of men on horseback, they consisted of infantry encumbered with all the trappings of a small army. These included artillery, hospital vehicles and overloaded ox wagons driven by poor handlers. Worse, the mounted infantry which accompanied them lacked striking power because the horses were badly managed and carrying too much equipment. The Australians, with experience on wide open plains and a high level of horsemanship, had written many letters home complaining of how badly the British treated their horses, believing they were an expendable item. The Australians knew that pushing an animal too far too fast and carrying heavy loads would leave them exhausted for weeks in the best case, and in the worst case, it would kill them through exhaustion. Most of these mounts were carrying over 120 kilograms of supplies per man, which meant these were not flying columns, they were crawling. These columns crawled around the countryside at a paltry 24 kilometers a day. To give you an idea of just how slow that is, during my many route marches as a soldier, I'd average 40 kilometers a day on foot, carrying 60 kilograms in my pack, besides an automatic weapon and ammunition, a radio and sometimes a stretcher. Of course, the Boers watched the slow-moving Shongololo, as one of South Africa's famous centipedes is known, from distant hills and reported all movements to the Boer commandos. The British would take a village or town and then move on. The Boers would then move back into the same village or town once they would left. At this point, mid-October 1900, the Boer tactics involved dispersal and evasion, and so an increasing desperation crept into Lord Roberts' orders. Following the Brandweiter debacle, where Boer commander Martinus Prinzler had surrendered in August, Roberts truly believed the Free State Boers were a beaten lot. And you have to agree that the numbers were impressive. 4,314 Boers surrendered with Prinzler, along with three guns, 2,800 head of cattle, 4,000 sheep and 6,000 horses. Two million rounds of ammunition were then blown up. This, though, is a real danger for commanders of an army. Living on your laurels and past victories is a foolhardy characteristic, and Robert suffered from the delusion that the Free State had been well and truly defeated. He forgot the rule of immediacy, that intelligence gathering is a constant 24-7 demand, and that tomorrow is another day. Still, he became incensed by the Boers, who continued to flit about the felt, destroying his trains and causing consternation. Clear the whole of supplies, he yelled, and impress on the burghers that if they choose to listen to Tibet and carry on a guerrilla war against us, they and their families will be starved. The Boers nevertheless rose up in their thousands and October saw flames of war lick across the free state once more. The Boers nibbled at the heels of every column and supply convoy around every garrison and along the length of the central railway. As I said last week, these attacks are similar to the French resistance or the Russian partisans in the Second World War. One minute, the Boers would be ploughing their lands. It was the start of rainy season, after all. Then the next minute, small groups would pick up the hidden moorses and take a few potshots at the British, then return to their ploughing, appearing as innocent as lambs. English troops sent letters home that were full of confusion. Roberts said they'd won. They'd been victorious. But they could not travel by night for fear of Boer attack. They frequently had to leave their trains to fight off enemy attacks and in the worst cases actually had their sailing orders cancelled and they were forced back into the field. So much for the victory. We heard in a previous podcast how General Christian de Wet had spent the past weeks riding through the Free State and cajoling Boers back into the war. By mid-October, de Wet crossed back to the north of the Vaal River into the Transvaal and then joined up with General Liebenberg to attack a British column at Friedrichstadt on the Klaakstorp Railway. Unfortunately for de Wet, he ran slap-bang into one of the more impressive British cavalry commanders of the entire war and the clash almost cost him his life let alone his freedom. General Charles Knox was the very definition of an unruffled soldier, and worse for de Witt, he was motivated and a good leader. General Knox was also famous for his large waxed moustache and a real weakness for cigars, and had made his name as part of the British force that cornered and captured Cronier at Pardebag in February 1900. At this point, de Witt had no idea who was going to be his dogged tracker, over the next few weeks. The Boer commander was considering a request and writes in his famous book, Three Years' War. I now received a report from General Liebenbach that General Barton and his column were in the neighborhood of Friedrichstadt station. He asked me, as he was too weak to venture anything alone, whether I would join him in an attack upon the British general. I decided to do so and sent him a confidential letter saying I would join him in a week's time. That letter was written on the 7th of October. But first, the wily Boer commander would create a false trail. He says, I retreated ostentatiously through Skumansdrift to the farm of Baltusport, which stands on the banks of the Ranostar River. As they waited, his men scratched their heads, and the British spies dutifully reported Debet's position. A few nights later, he suddenly ordered his men back into the saddle, and they set off in silence in the dark, unobserved by the spies and the British scouts. So de Wett and his 300 mounted burghers made their way to Friedrichstadt, but, little known to him, his fellow Boer commander had committed a blunder, which de Wett glosses over in his book, but if you consider tactics, was a glaring error. General Liebenberg had decided to cut the British Telegraph Line at the earliest convenience. The British had to resort to heliograph messages these mirrors used to flash signals from hill to hill, only during the day, because they used the sun. But it also alerted the British to a possible attack, which was a mistake. While General Barton was an alert man and his troops were patrolling and aware of their position, the cut line was a red flag that an escalation must be imminent. De Witt writes, Now, I do not know if they smelt a rat, but they were certainly well entrenched near the station on the ridges to the southeast and to the north. That meant De Witt had to resort to the well-known Boer tactic of besieging the entrenched units instead of a full frontal attack immediately. In the following five days, General Frunemann, who was riding with De Wett, moved to northwest of the strongest part of the British position. De Wett decided to reinforce this position with 200 more burghers under command of Frunemann and Liebenbach. But for once, De Wett's orders fell by the wayside. Instead of 200 men arriving at the strongest British point, only 80 made it. You must understand that the Boers moved only during the night, as the British had artillery and snipers, which would have made any movements dangerous during the day. It also meant some confusion as those who have been part of a night attack know. Objects appear closer, night sounds accentuate conflicting emotions, and the darkness causes mistakes in both navigation and decision making. Obviously, an attacking force is unable to communicate effectively in the dark as well. Whatever the reasons, in this instance, the small group of Boers was suddenly attacked at daybreak by a much larger British unit that General Barton ordered into action. The initiative switched rapidly from the Boers to the British. The 80 Boers used up their ammunition, defending themselves, then slid down the rear of the slope they'd climbed and ran back in retreat. The ridge protected some from the British fire, including artillery. Still, of the 80, 30 were killed or wounded. De Wet was mortified and wrote, Among the dead was the renowned Sarel Saliers, grandson of the worthy foot of the same name. Feldkornet, Uri Bessels, was the most distinguished of the prisoners. The Fuertrekkers were the Boers who left the Cape almost 70 years before and made what is known as the Great Trek Northwards to escape British colonialism. In American terms, in some ways, the Fuertrekkers would be known as the pioneers, although I'm sure many historians would argue against using this phrase as it's a little too simplistic. However, the point is, Saliers was symbolic of the spirit of the Boers, and his son was now dead fighting the British in a colonial war more than a thousand kilometres from where his father, Sarrel, set off with the Andries Portkita Trek Party in the 1830s. And so began General Christian de Wetz's withdrawal, followed closely by General Knox, he of the waxed moustache, above a cigar clenched between his teeth, who was sent by Roberts as part of the three divisions of reinforcements. Knox clung tenaciously to de Witt's trail and finally caught up with the fast-moving Boer General at Schumannstift Ford back across the Vaal near Paris. It was close to Skummetsdrift that General Knox's men, including a really effective unit of Australians, had taken up strategically important positions on the high ground and they waited for the Boer commander. De Vett's scouts had failed him for once, as the crack Donny Teran unit was not with him. Worse, remember that Donny Teran himself had been killed earlier in September, so De Vett was without one of his most important officers. The Australians opened fire with artillery and rifles, blowing up an ox wagon full of ammunition. The Boers were forced to dismount and led their horses quickly behind the walls of a local black village and the earthen homes. The vet wrote, We were forced to retreat and a most unpleasant time of it we had until we got out of range of their guns and small arms. He also lost his only artillery piece when a wheel broke off. As night fell, 300 Boers made a dash to escape eastwards, then close to midnight they turned and reversed course in a classic manoeuvre that bought De Wett's men some time. General Knox was still following, however, like a bloodhound, along with the Australian unit that had caused De Wett so much trouble at skumanstraf Once again, Devet broke his commander in two, the larger group he sent to the safety of the Free State while he prepared to slip back into the Transvaal with a smaller group to head off to the meeting with President Stain and the other Boer generals. Finally, Knox was shaken off, but the incident had shaken Devet, and he was now running late for his rendezvous with the other Boer commanders and Stain on the 25th of October as he was forced to lie low once more. While all of this was going on, the empire was still being tapped for troops and material. In Australia, men continued signing up after reports about how well their fellow citizens had been faring in South Africa. This, though, was not without controversy back home in Australia. In the historical work, Australia's Communities and the Boer War, by author John McQuilton, he writes about the behaviour of some of the volunteers attending the musters, which had also fueled doubts about the Australian volunteers' adaptability to military discipline and an imperial cause. The men who had travelled to Banala, which lies on the Broken River to the northeast of Melbourne, in Victoria, for example, they had answered the call to join the war, but during the trip, let's say they'd had quite a time of it. Rowdy behaviour and damage to railway property brought regional press censure and a police investigation and a nearby Wangaratta rowdism which included destroying the Church of England's flower show horrors was blamed on young men who came to enlist. The column space devoted to the war in the regional press on October 1900 suddenly dropped dramatically, giving way to telegraphic reports instead supplied by Reuters. In part, this reflected a belief that the war was effectively over, but more importantly, it also reflected Lord Kitchener's tightening grip over what news was released as he attempted to counter the growing opposition to the war in Britain from the Little Englanders who believed that it was morally indefensible. One of the news stories Kitchener failed to censor and keep from the Australian and English press was a coming massacre of Boer soldiers who'd surrendered to Australians near Pretoria. This was the Breker morant saga. I'll come back to this tale in mid-November because that's when it happened. Suffice to say, it was not one of Australia's high points in the Anglo-Boer War and actually shocked all who heard about what amounted to summary executions. So while on matters antipodean, in New Zealand, the same eagerness to support the English cause had led Premier Richard Seddon to offer troops way back in September 1899. By the end of the war, three years later, 10 contingents of volunteers totaling more than 6,500 men, plus 8,000 horses, had sailed for South Africa, along with doctors, nurses, veterinary surgeons, and even 20 school teachers. Through the war, 71 New Zealanders were killed in action or died of wounds, with another 159 dying in accidents or from disease. For those who think this was a trifling number, you're only partially correct. What is chilling here is that the South African War set the pattern for New Zealand's later involvement in the First World War. Their courage during the Anglo-Boer War led directly to the terrible incidents which are commemorated now as Anzac Day. That was Gallipoli during the First World War. You see, the New Zealanders' success in the Anglo-Boer War battles fostered the idea they were natural soldiers who needed little training to fight well. They were natural battle-hardened frontiersmen. I'm going to spend more time on the role of the New Zealanders in the Anglo-Boer War in future podcasts. But before ending, just a quick note and one which is ironic. In 1900, the New Zealand Premier Richard Seddon had also suggested Maori soldiers be allowed to fight. But of course, we've heard how imperial authorities in London wanted this to be a so-called white man's war and the colonial office rejected the request. What is not known is that hundreds of Maoris actually did sign up and fight in the Anglo-Boer War, with authorities turning a blind eye to their involvement. In one instance, which I'll come back to in the future, an entire unit of 500 Maoris were dispatched to Africa to join the imperial forces fighting the Boers. Once more, this exposes the myth that this was a war that only involved white combatants. History is full of illusion, denial, and deception, isn't it? And military history brings all of those into even sharper relief. So it's time to end this podcast. Please send me a note through our website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. And remember to rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs>